I have the uh, privilege of reading God's word to you from John 4. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank of it himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, ever But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come back here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, as as you've... um surely noticed by now the the theme this morning is God's imperative that his people go purposefully 
to make Christ known. And it might beg the question to you, go where? Go where? Well, not necessarily going to a place like rural Montana or someplace where you need a bush plane to get to. Our passage this morning that we just heard read to us is to do with saved people going to unsaved people. How many of you know saved people are sent people? You've heard this before, right? Jesus is showing his disciples here in John 4, because they're going to ask him about this later. He's showing them how to move toward people with, with the good news of forgiveness and eternal life. How, how to bring living water to thirsty souls. And as Jesus gives them this um, master class in personal evangelism, he gives them and he gives us some principles that we are to embrace in our role as his witnesses. We who know Jesus today, saved people, are sent people. Missions for all of us is simply a case of ordinary people sharing with other ordinary people the extraordinary good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. And I wonder, Christian, do you see yourself this way? Uh, A saved person, now sent by the Savior, seeking sinners. Is your personal life a little microcosm, a little glimpse of this great design of God for his kingdom people, his church. And this is really not a rhetorical question because the the passage that was just read to us confronts us with this very thing. Look at verse 3 in John 4. Jesus left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. This is early in our Savior's earthly ministry. Um, the religious establishment in Judea uh, is already jealous of, of Jesus' popularity. Uh, they're very eager to be rid of Jesus as they are now rid of John the Baptist. Herod has now arrested John the Baptist. And Jesus knows that his time to go to Calvary And take upon himself the just wrath of the Father for the sins of his people is not yet. That's later. And so to avoid a premature conflict with the Pharisees, Jesus goes back up north to Galilee. And what do we see the Savior doing as he's heading back up north? What we always see him doing in the Gospels, Jesus is seeking sinners. And listen, those whom Jesus saves, in turn, seek the lost on their Savior's behalf. Where? Wherever we go. And the wording in verse 4 makes this plain. I know you're, you're familiar with this passage. It says that he had to pass through Samaria. In the same way that, that we're told Jesus you know, just resolutely set his face to go toward Jerusalem when it was time to go to the cross. 
He was determined to go through Samaria, uh, which is unusual uh, because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They would do anything almost not to have to have personal contact with one another. Uh, A Jew would not even want to step on Samaritan soil. And I wonder this morning, are there there certain places and certain people um, you dislike and because of that, you, you simply avoid them? Racial hatred steeped in ancient history had built a tremendous barrier between these two peoples, the Jews and the Samaritans. Religious prejudice steeped in ancient history had built a tremendous barrier between these two peoples. Remember, the Samaritans were the descendants of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. We read in our Old Testament how the the kingdom Israel uh, at, at, at one point was divided right? The 10 tribes to the north, Israel, uh, the, the southern tribes, Judah, Benjamin, um, Judah. And these people from the 10 northern tribes um, set up their own places of worship, not Mount Moriah, not Jerusalem, um, displeasing God. Uh, God judged Israel. They were eventually overrun by the Assyrians. And what did the Assyrians do? Well, they took most of the people from Israel away, and then they brought back a whole bunch of people from all of the other kingdoms they had conquered. You can imagine what that does in a culture. It's all intermarried. Uh, they, they are now worshiping um, not only Yahweh, but they are worshiping um, the pagan gods of, of the the. Uh, the people from the countries that they're now intermarrying with. Second Kings 17 says of, of, of their ancestors, they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. And he, we don't have to imagine what this is like. We see people right here in Kootenai County who are more than happy to name God and might even name Jesus, but they got a bunch of other stuff going on too, don't they? Maybe that's you. We'll come back to that. John's gospel makes plain that Jesus intends to break down these barriers that separate people. To Jesus, this journey uh, through Samaria is, is a necessary divine appointment. He needed to go through Samaria. And you say, well, yeah, but that's because he's Jesus. Well, that's true for sure. But, but think of it this way in, in, the, in the sense of the Bible's big picture. The father has ordained to give to the son the nations as an inheritance. Do you believe this? Because this is happening now. The kingdom of, of heaven is expanding just like leaven in a, in a, in a lump of dough. Slowly but surely. And and the conquest of nations now is beginning in the earthly ministry of King Jesus. He's come to build a kingdom from every tribe and tongue and nation. Soon after uh, his, his resurrection and ascension to heaven, he will say to his followers, hey, listen, 
I want you to remember my example. You shall be witnesses to me. You begin in Jerusalem. You, you go throughout Judea. And then where? Samaria. And so here is the king already tilling kingdom soil for his disciples. This, this is a divine encounter. And there's a great urgency to it. Just one person. Nonetheless, great urgency. And friend, I wonder if it's possible that you're here this morning by divine appointment. And of all of the, the circumstances that led to you coming here, you're here in this church on this day to, to hear of this Jesus who is still seeking sinners. Like who? Like, like you. Church, think of what Jesus is showing his disciples, though. This, this, is, this is his master class on evangelism. And so I'm going I'm to just point out five really easy-to-see principles that Jesus is giving to his disciples here. They're going to ask him about this later. But there are more. We'll just cover five of them today. Most Jews thought that they could avoid defilement if they just avoided Samaria. And so to get up north to Galilee, um, they would actually go east from Jerusalem, cross the Jordan River, head up that way. Just, just avoid even po the possibility of running into such people. That way they didn't have to touch the untouchables, you see. Who would touch the untouchable? Well, well Jesus would. And Jesus does today through his people. And how common is it today for Christians to seek to avoid defilement or even just discomfort by isolating themselves from those people? Now pay attention now because we're going in a direction. There is a prevailing vibe in our little corner of Christendom here in North Idaho that's all about getting away from people. What people? Those people. Are you hearing this? This is not the gospel. Jesus didn't do this. And so his disciples must learn not to do this. Friends, we're not to order our lives so that we avoid encounters with those whose ways and beliefs and lifestyles are different from ours. We're to move toward them with gospel purpose. Don't miss that part, but not move away from them. So here is the first principle. We're making tremendous progress, aren't we? Here, here's, the, here's the first principle. It's simply the principle of deliberateness. Deliberateness. Or, or you could say intentionality. Is there a deliberateness in your life? How would you know? Is this on your mind in your, in your prayers as you begin each day? Lord, give me an opportunity to make much of you to somebody else. Lord, give me an opportunity and then eyes to see that opportunity and then wisdom and words to make the most of that opportunity. You'll do the work, Lord, but, but I know you want to use me somehow. 
Lord, I don't want to be someone who goes out of his way so as to not have contact with those people. Remember Pastor Sean exhorting us from Scripture last week. Our everyday purpose is this, God's word to his world, right? We're not hoarders of the gospel. We're not hoarders of God's truth. We're heralds, not hoarders. Again, saved people are sent people. Have you heard this before? Anybody? How, how are we doing with this? The Great Commission demands deliberateness, don't you think? I mean, at some point, you got to pick up and go to rural Montana. At some point, you got to go across the street. And this is the point in a sermon on evangelism where people start to get all squirmy. Are you getting squirmy? It's okay. Um, Because part of that is understandable. The reason we get all squirmy when we hear this kind of stuff is that we've been led to believe, perhaps, that personal evangelism is a program. It's a special program. And you, and you go to a class, it takes six weeks, and you learn an acronym, and then, and then you go out uh, in the course of, of living in that workplace or going to that school or, or just hanging out with your buddies, and, and you foist your program on them. And, 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 the, and some of us have done this, and, and, and people look at you like you're weird. Do you know why? Because that's weird. That's just weird. Those programs are beneficial tools. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not meaning to disparage that. But they are not a substitute for just having a natural conversation with another image bearer of God. Evangelism is not primarily a program. It is not primarily a religious activity. Let's all meet at the church tonight and we're going to go knock on people's doors and the ones, those of us who survive, um, no. Now, if the Lord calls you to knock on somebody's door, please knock on that door. Don't ignore that. But this is not about methodology. This is about loving people. Look at verse 5. Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Are you still listening? It was near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. There's no organized, um, systematic approach to this. This is not a programmatic thing, a rehearsed, you know, evangelistic script. Um, This is normal, everyday life. It's high noon. It's freakishly hot. They're at a well. I wonder what they'll talk about. Water. Very natural. It it was unnatural. It was unnatural to this woman that Jesus would speak to her at all. The text makes that very plain and and why that was. Um, 
the prejudices of the day would have prevented that from happening normally. But, but Jesus is showing us this morning that when it comes to seeking sinners, prejudices are disavowed. I wonder if you have any prejudices that, that just need to be disavowed. Just, just get rid of them. What else is kind of set to the side here? Personal comfort, convenience, Going to this well at high noon alone was neither convenient nor comfortable. It's not about that. So here is the second principle. It's the the principle of selflessness. We will never go to them if we never get over us. And again, the words that Jesus uses are quite natural. They're going to talk about water. And we don't want to think that having a normal conversation like this means that it will never turn to spiritual matters. How many of you know if the Holy Spirit is at work, it's going to turn to spiritual matters? Quick example. We live in a world whose people are preoccupied with the future. Have you noticed this? I mean, look at the best-selling books. Look at the, uh, the symposiums that are given even you know, by, by people who wouldn't name God. Um, and, and there's a great deal of fear, and there, there's a great deal of pessimism. Um, there, there's a great deal of hopelessness. Um, this comes up all the time in conversations with people. Can we not start at that very natural point of conversation And speak of our own security, our own assurance, even with respect to an uncertain future. We know the God who owns the future. We serve the master who orchestrates the future. And all because of his grace in Christ, grace freely offered. To other thirsty sinners, we have real hope. Do you live with hope? Another example, we we live in a world whose people are preoccupied with avoiding illness and aging and death. And I simply ask you, how's that going? I mean, everybody hits the trifecta when it comes to illness, aging, and death. This is life in a fallen world. Life in a world whose every single molecule is tainted by the curse of sin. Can we not start then at that very natural point of conversation as as those who know the one who has conquered death and gives a share in this great victory to his people? All who turn to him in faith. Now notice that this Samaritan woman is blinded by the God of this world. What's that like? Well, it's not unlike our neighbors and our classmates and our teammates and our coworkers, okay? Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
Now, she hears that, and she's thinking of, like, the fresh water from a running stream, and we're at this well, and the water is not the greatest, and, you know, what's he talking about? She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst ever. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, there, there is so much to say about this, but I, I'm, some of you are already checking your watches. Bless your hearts. That actually wasn't even a joke. Listen, Jesus is not content to have this conversation last all day only talking about physical water. His heart is to move from earthly, trivial things to eternal truth. At some point, you and I in our gospel conversations, do do we have gospel conversations with people? You and I in our gospel conversations at some point must move from earthly trivia to eternal truth. This woman's greatest need is not that she needs to be accepted by others, (laughs) though she clearly has been rejected by the women from her village. She's alone drawing water at high noon. Nobody draws water at high noon. Unless you're a tramp who's been rejected by everybody in town and you bear the shame of all of that by slinking out there by yourself. She's a daughter of Eve who has sought satisfaction in human relationships. And that that is just one of the many leaky cisterns a thirsty soul goes to. And one after another, after another, after another, not one can quench her thirst. And as soon as this woman senses Jesus is getting a bit preachy, she wants to change the subject. Who cares about such a woman? Jesus cares about such a woman. Notice how she dodges the whole thing, though. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? I mean, there's the the barrier of skepticism and distrust and cynicism. We will encounter that when we share Christ with others. Jews hate Samaritans. What's your deal? There's the barrier of prejudice. You think we run into that sometimes when we share the gospel? I'm the one with the bucket, fella, not you. Who are you to talk to me about water? If I weren't here, you would go thirsty. There is the barrier of self-sufficiency. Whatever it is you're offering, fella, I don't want it. I don't need it. And Jesus is showing us that as we go out into the wide world, and let's just, let's just say it's as far as across your street, you're going to run into skepticism. 
and you're going to run into cynicism, and you're going to run into prejudice, and you're going to run into self-sufficiency. These are the natural responses the witnesses of Jesus expect as they're bearing witness for the Savior. And, And so what do you do? You just quit. Well, here is the principle of persevering compassion. Jesus didn't give up on her. And and, and he's going to teach his disciples as they see him do this again and again and again. Listen, guys, um, don't quit after the first pitch. Love people enough to see them through this. If not in the first conversation, then the second. If not in the second, then in the third. If such an opportunity is likely. Maybe it's the next year, the next family gathering. You get the idea, but don't just quit on them. We're meant to go through the slightest open door for the gospel. So don't be easily offended. Don't get drawn into a secondary argument And don't stop at the first sense of tension or pushback or disfavor. Do you notice that Jesus uses the word water three times in verse 14? And I'm not mentioning that just because it's in the children's listening guide. But it is. So that's a freebie for the kids if you're you're still hanging with us here. But living in a desert land, as the Jews and the Samaritans did, water became a metaphor not only for physical life, but spiritual life. The Jews often spoke of the soul's thirst for God. And they often spoke of, of, of quenching that thirst with, with, with living water. What, what is this living water for thirsty souls? It, it's forgiveness from God. It, it's friendship with God. It's fellowship with God, both now and forever. In other words, it's salvation in all of its aspects. And this woman in her ignorance is trying to figure out what what kind of water is this guy promising? He doesn't have a rope. He doesn't have a bucket. And all the while, Jesus is speaking of himself. He is the source. He is the the fountain of this living water. It's interesting to me, and and so I'm going to foist it on you all, that that in verse 10, the the word that is translated gift is mentioned four times in the book of Acts um, to refer to the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so so when Jesus speaks of living water, he speaks of the very life of God brought to his people by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's salvation in all of its aspects. Where, where can I get this living water? Where can I get this, this reality of, of knowing that I'm saved from sin's penalty, sin's hell, only in Jesus? Where, where can I experience the reality that I'm being saved in real time from the power of sin to dominate my life, only in Jesus? How can I know 
that I'm living toward a certain future when I will have been saved from even the presence of sin within me and around me. Only in Jesus. He is the living water. And be sure of this, Jesus is still offering this living water today. And he offers it so often through the lives and words of his messengers, his deliberate, selfless, compassionate, sent ones. Revelation 21.6 says, Our risen, ascended Savior, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Salvation freely given by grace to all who come to God through Christ. He's still listening. Is your soul thirsty? You say, well, that's not why I came here today. I didn't ask you that. Is your soul thirsty? You need this Jesus. Well, like many people today, this woman wants to dodge this whole business of making it personal, doesn't she? The woman said to him, verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw She's still focused on physical water, isn't she? It's almost as if she's saying, you know, um, I'll, I'll buy into your program, fella, because I, I would like God to do me this favor. I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to, to have to stop worrying about the humiliation and embarrassment I experience when I go to this well alone. So I'll, I'll, I'll buy into this. And how common it is today for people to feign interest or even feign belief in God. Just, he's going to do them some kind of earthly favor. So we want to be careful with that. Jesus will have none of this. So he pushes, however tenderly, the real issue must be this woman's soul, this woman's heart. He said to her, verse 16, go call your husband and come back here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So far, this had been a fairly safe conversation. I mean, they're just talking about water. And there's ambiguity about what kind of water is really being discussed here and all of that, but, it, but it's a safe conversation. And now all of a sudden, there's a shot across the bow uh, for love's sake, and it, and it becomes quite personal. How many of you know the gospel is not about generalities? It, it, it's always personal. The gospel is not just that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save you from your sin. It's always personal, not general. Jesus intends to take this woman's sin to Calvary's cross, 
where her sin will be judged by the fierce wrath of God. All of her guilt and shame will be laid upon Jesus when that judgment is poured out. Jesus as her substitute. He'll suffer her hell in her place. And all of his righteousness will be credited to her. This is the scandal of the gospel, right? And he offers this to all who repent and turn to him by faith. Friends, at some point, our gospel conversations must deal with sin. And we live in a culture that says, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be judgmental. I mean, don't, don't, be, don't be one of those people. You, you, you must be one of those people. I mean, how, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them of sin's remedy? So here is the principle of truthfulness. And we're making progress. Don't be discouraged. We're, get, we're getting close. Jesus, do, Jesus doesn't condemn this woman for her promiscuity, if you want to call it that. Jesus doesn't shame her. Nor should we sinners saved by grace be shaming anybody for their experience with sin. But we can't ignore sin either. And it is awkward. This lady starts shuffling her feet. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. And then, where do you go to church? I mean, she's going to evade the whole issue here of personal accountability to God. Because as long as we're just doing this religious stuff in our conversation, it's safe. Oh, what's your, what's your background? You seem kind of prophety. Um, where you, you go to church? You go to synagogue around here? Well, obviously you didn't. But, but do you think we will hear the equivalent of that today? When, when, when the gospel conversation gets personal, well, the church is full of hypocrites anyway. But deal with that. I, I read somewhere that the Bible's got discrepancies in it contradicts itself in some places. Turns out it doesn't, but people, we'll hear people say that, right? What, what about the rapture? When's that going to happen? Who, who's the Antichrist? Because, you know, I got one neighbor who says it's the Pope. I got another neighbor who says it's Vladimir Putin. And, and when I was in junior high, it was, it was Anwar Sadat from, from Egypt. And so... What, what do you make of that? And the, and, and the thing of it is, the, those questions have answers for sure, but, but they just aren't the main thing, are they? And, and so Jesus acknowledges her error, but, but he doesn't let that become the focus. The, the Samaritans had compromised Scripture. They, they only accepted the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, they had compromised worship. I mentioned that earlier. Um, so Jesus just corrects it, and, and then he moves on. He, he says to her in verse 25, or excuse me, she says to him, I know 
that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will declare all these things to us. At some point, we'll be able to sort all of this stuff out. And, And Jesus just says to her, I who speak to you am he. You see, at at some point, all all of this talk of water and worship has to move in the direction of who this woman is. She's a needy sinner. And it has to move in the direction of who is this Jesus? He is the seeking Savior. So, listen, we we don't speak to our, our family members and our friends and our coworkers merely to confront them with, with religious theories. We don't, we don't have to go there. We don't have to spend a whole lot of energy even trying to get them to think about, say, conservatism as opposed to liberalism, that sort of thing. I know you don't do that, but you've heard of people who do. Um, how many of you know that convincing someone to vote Republican is not witnessing to them? Those are, I mean, could, how sad that that's funny. God forgive us. If we don't get to Jesus in our conversation, we have not witnessed to them. So here is the principle of gospel clarity. Gospel clarity demands that we speak not only of sin, but of the Savior. And and just notice the result of this one encounter. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? It's not really a question, is it? Is this not the Christ? I got stuck on that first part, though. The woman leaves her water jar. I mean, the the very reason she's at this well, she's set that aside. The, the, The very focus of the rhythm of her life, how do I get what I need despite my shame, despite my guilt, despite the way others are treating me, she sets all of that aside and she abandons the bringing of water for the bringing of others to Christ. And so I'll just end with that. Has that miracle happened in your life? Is, is, is there some stuff that you've abandoned for the sake of bringing others to Christ? She becomes a bridge over which others walk to come to faith in Jesus. And, and friends, that, that is my prayer for myself. That is my prayer for us as a church that we will increasingly become a bridge over which others walk to come to faith in Jesus. All glory to God. It's his work. But how many of you know his saved people are his sent people? All right, that's it. Let, let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. We, th- we thank you for this Sunday where we uh, have, have been blessed to celebrate your work in one of our families, Lord, sending them to a place not many want to go. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word so in our hearts with this 
reminder of familiar truth. Lord, that we wouldn't become so preoccupied that we forget that we're your sent ones. And Lord, you call us to to live deliberately toward this. Lord, to, to live selflessly in light of this. But Lord, to show persevering compassion as we speak truth to others. Lord, I pray, give us opportunity this week to make much of Jesus. We ask you this, Lord, that your kingdom would grow among us and around us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.